What is up guys? This is All The Smoke on Strength and Physique with your hosts, Adam and Chris, where we provide you with evidence-based information, community support, and recognition to all who are betting themselves with fitness. All right, welcome back to All The Smoke on Strength and Physique. We got us, I have to keep it low key because I can't hype him up too much. He is, in my opinion, one of the best, if not the best, professor at USF. Very low-key. He will throw a dodgeball at you if you raise your hand too quick or if you fall asleep in his class, so you better watch out for that. But, Dr. Marcus Kilpatrick, for our X amount of listeners, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, please, sir? All right. Yeah, good morning. Um, So, yeah, Marcus Kilpatrick, um, a Florida native, which makes me kind of an unusual bird, maybe. And uh, grew up in the Panhandle, Florida, went to Florida State for undergrad, went out to Texas, um, Austin for master's and PhD. Um, FSU was nutrition, but it was it was kind of the forerunner to exercise science when they didn't really have that there yet. Went out to um, Texas, got my master's degree in kinesiology, which was kind of a lean into exercise phys. And then middle, late that program, I decided I was really more interested in some of the behavior and some of the psychology more than I was interested in some of the basic science, the biology. So I moved into um, what is now a health promotion degree. And so I earned my doctorate there. Um, my dissertation was around exercise psychology around a theory called self-determination theory. Spent a few years um, at kind of a smaller teaching school in Louisiana. And now I've been at USF for what will be my 18th year coming up soon. And um, I have a great job and I have great students and I get to hang out with them sometimes like you two gentlemen. So what else you want to know? What else you want me to share to start you off? So I'm curious, uh, based off of your transition to more of a psychological approach from going to nutrition to kinesiology and then your PhD, it was uh, the, you said self-determination theory that you really focused on? which is a theory of motivation, trying to understand in its most simple form, it's trying to make distinctions between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. And then even within the extrinsic motivation, how there are some extrinsic motives that are more desirable and some that are less desirable around this idea of whether or not your motives are autonomous and freely chosen, or if instead they are somehow coerced and forced and regulated by outside forces. And so that was the the dissertation piece. And I've published bits and pieces of that um, kind of work over over time, but that's not my primary thing anymore, but I still think it's a really cool theory. Have you ever considered getting further education in a psychology related field? Because I, I think any smart coach or uh, well understanding coach will say is psychology is one of those things that is just totally overlooked into the coaching industry. Yes, I, I don't think I ever gave any real consideration to going back and getting more education per se. But when I was in my doctoral program, I did kind of lean into some additional psychology coursework. So yeah, I think it's it's a, a pretty cool thing. And now when I look at research, and it's 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 a bias that I have, but I think it's 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 reasonable that the fun, cool research in my mind is um, there's a lot of good stuff. But that's what excites me is looking at the psychology part. And so something you said made me think of something that used to be in the ACSM guidelines for exercise testing and prescription, and it may still be there, but I I can almost picture this little paragraph, this little statement when it describes um, exercise prescription 
as an art and a science. And so when we think about the physiology and the biomechanics, that's what probably what they mean when they say that's the science. But the art is the working with people and understanding people and motivating people and those sorts of things. And so um, it certainly can be overlooked, though I think increasingly reasonable, smart, thoughtful people who work with athletes and clients and patients that they understand it, that it's important for sure. And I would say the, that is a, a really good way to put it that I haven't heard of it yet. Uh, it's sort of an art trying to, to coach people to get them to go through changes and stuff like that is, is some stages. Cause you focus more on internal and external factors, stages of change. Are you, what would you say are, is important about that? And when someone is safe to go into exercise or when someone's actually mastered it and call, can call it like a daily habit or weekly habit, I guess not daily. So what level of familiarity should I presume of you or the folks who are listening about stage of change? And I would assume about it. Yeah. I would assume like you're teaching an undergrad class and say, Hey, what is even the theory of the stages of changes and kind of break it okay. down from there. Yeah. So I'll try to, run roughshod over the background, and then I'll try to come to Chris's question. So this theory, um, this trans theoretical model um, was basically not any one theory. It was trying to pull ideas from a lot of different theories to try to understand human behavior, um, primarily around stopping bad behaviors more than producing and inducing um, good behaviors. And so it wasn't originally applied to exercise, but it's been successfully utilized within exercise context. But so the theory basically suggests that we can identify any person that's alive on their readiness to make a change towards something they want to do, whether that's quitting smoking, changing their diet, or we'll say here, um, initiating and maintaining um, exercise behavior. And so we have folks who are just not ready at all they have a very negative attitude. Um, they only see the downside and they really see very little bit of the upside. And then you kind of evolve through these steps, these stages until you go from <clears throat> having no readiness to a little bit more readiness. And there's names for each of these stages until you're finally ready to start moving, start doing some good things, but you're still not all the way there. And then after you engage in the behavior over time, then these folks really begin to have a pattern of behavior that has an opportunity to be, have a good success over long term. And so there are some pretty simple tools out there where you can just ask people just a couple of questions and you can identify where they are in terms of their stage of change, their readiness for change. And that's kind of half, that's at least one of the big components of that theory. Another large component of that theory is then after we know what stage someone is in, we can then tailor um, and match the intervention, the way we talk to people, the, the types of um, materials we might share with them um, to be able to facilitate that next move to that next stage. And so if someone is completely not ready for physical activity and then you just tell them to go buy a gym membership, that's not going to be very useful. But if instead you can change some of their mindset around the value of physical activity, change their attitude, show them some of the pros, maybe talk them down on some of their cons for why they think exercise is so such a, a bad idea for them. You slowly incrementally move them towards a place where they would say, 
yeah, this seems like a pretty good idea. And now we've made another step. We can then encourage them to maybe start looking at some resources, watching some YouTube videos, reading some materials, maybe checking out um, um, facilities that they might want to consider trying out for a membership or lots of things like that. And then once they get in, now we need to maintain that motivation. And so there are these stages of change. And then we have what's referred to as processes of change where you're either trying to change the attitude and the mindset, or you're actually trying to facilitate behavior change and maintain it over time. And the really pretty part of the theory that isn't really true is that if you advance someone from, from nothing all the way up to being a long-term exercise behavior type person, that their story ends and they maintain exercise forever. But we understand based over like the life history, the natural history of someone they're going to exercise for weeks and months and stay with it for a few years. And there's going to be a period of time could be injury, could be lots of things that could get in the way, but naturally people are going to kind of ebb and flow. Most people are going to ebb and flow where they will kind of fall off their behavior for weeks or months and they have to pick right back up. But if they had advanced to a very high stage, it would be rare that they would fall all the way back down to zero. So instead they can kind of slide back in, get their feet back under them and then continue forward. And so that's kind of a, the process of um, how this tends to work. And then there are some coaching and counseling types of things that go along with that to try to facilitate that behavior change. And so I'm not sure how close I got to getting to your question ultimately, Chris, so you can restate it if you don't think I got all the pieces you wanted. I think you nailed it spot on. Uh, I think it's really important for people. And I think you did an amazing job, probably one of the best jobs that I've heard someone explain it. And if you're very apprehensive or very uh, resistant to even going and looking at a gym or looking at a YouTube video on what to do when you get to the gym, then having a coach tell you, go get a gym membership is probably going to push you farther back. Um, and I think the steps is very important. I think too many people, uh, both client and coaches underestimate the power of just simply looking up benefits and how that can actually fuel the fire to going in the direction of someone's goals. Adam, do you have something? So, you know, I would ask, so Dr. KP with that being said, right, there's these levels and I think nowadays, right, we want to level up super quick. Would you encourage that process of speed or would you say, hey, do we need to kind of take it slow and steady? So, again, it's sustainable, maintainable, and we can kind of hopefully resist that stage of our life where things kind of get in the way, whether it be family, injury, COVID, and we just kind of revert back to our, our normal old self. Would you encourage that speeding of up process or would you say, no, we should probably slow it down and again, make it a part of your life or who would you, what would you say there? Yeah. So I'll, I'll be reluctant to say anything definitive here um, as it relates to what the research literature would have to say, because I don't really know the answer to that. And it's actually a really fine question that per perhaps deserves some attention if it hasn't already received attention. Like if you speed someone along, and, you, and to be clear, you can't, you can't force that speed anyways, but if someone happens to move very, very quickly through those stages, are they at greater risk for backsliding back into their kind of less desirable behavior? I don't think that research has been done, and yet I will, I will support your premise that 
a more steady climb through those stages of change feels more beneficial, feels like it has an opportunity for long-term behavior change. Um, and I could, I could look into some other um, principles in psychology and um, even in education and learning that when you take the time to go through things, um, you're more likely to be able to sustain it. We could look in, in the classroom in terms of trying to have a crash course on learning something. Um, you might be able to be successful in the short term, but being able to maintain that over time, it's almost like teaching the test. Um, you can probably speed your way through the stages, but I think time spent reflecting on all of these pros and cons, really thinking about the benefits of exercise and how it might provide you with some of these outcomes that you desire. I think a slower process is better. Um, that feels obviously the case, but I, I can't think of the research that would specifically back it up. Yeah. So I don't know anything either, but I just finished reading a book called Mastery and they really heavily stress that, you know, the Albert Einsteins, the Leonardo Vinci, like those individuals, they were gifted. Yes. But they also took decades to really kind of get where they were. And I think that's the main message Chris and I, and I hope any good coach out there was like, Hey, there's beauty in this struggle, right? For you to fall on your face, those experiences lead to, you know, optimal growth and for you to kind of understand and reflect on that and continuously get better off of that. But what are some red flags that the research shows from your experience that either interviewing people, talking to individuals that, Hey, maybe we are going too fast and we need to kind of slow it down or, the opposite. Hey, maybe we're going too slow. We need to speed it up. Is there any red flags that you would kind of denote from somebody's speech? Yeah, I don't, I don't have anything I would say really concrete to offer here. Um, I would, I would only um, state that it really should be tailored to the individual. Um, and this is where having that good coach, whether that's a kind of a sport coach or a wellness coach or a life coach, they have to have a feel for their client in terms of how they're reacting to all of the changes going on around them. And so there, there would be value in frequent check-ins with the client, with the athlete to make sure they feel good that they're fully assimilating all of this, all the things that are going on that are associated with this, this change. And so I think in a lot of ways, having really great communication and trust between whoever's in the lead position coaching and then the client or the patient or the athlete, that's pretty critical. Um, and if that trust is there, then there should be a good opportunity for that longer term success. So it's funny that you say that because we've had some great coaches, even researchers now, and it's, it's not more of, you know, telling what the, the, either the player or the client is, is more like you said, kind of teach them. And then you said three key words, I think earlier that I'd like to get back to, which is autonomy, intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. So if you don't mind, could you kind of define those and how we should differentiate and what the ultimate goal for any individual when it comes to exercise with those three terms? Yeah, sure. So um, the self-determination theory is built around this idea that we can explain motivation along a continuum that exists and at the bottom of that continuum is what we would describe as a motivation just simple lack of motivation and at the top of this is intrinsic motivation and then there are numerous motives along the way in between these two ends of the of the spectrum of sorts 
And in the early thinkings around this, it was really, we simply divided motivation into do you have it or don't you have it? And then we decided, well, let's be a little bit more elaborate and we talk about extrinsic versus intrinsic. With intrinsic being in its truest form, I do this because I love it, not for any really other reason. Like it's just satisfying, it's just really enjoyable, it's just great. In, in, in reality, what that should mean is if you're exercising to get swole or to get people to look at you like you're cool, that's not intrinsic motivation. You're absolutely doing that for some sort of extrinsic reward. So you would only be by the textbook. You would only be truly intrinsically motivated if you would continue to do this activity, even if I could give you a pill and give you all of the other side effects and benefits. If I can give you a pill and you can live forever, if I can give you a pill and you can look like you can lift a house, if I can give you a pill and give you all of these benefits and you're like, that's nice and all, but I just want to go do this thing. I want to go lift. I want to go run. I want to move. If you would say that, then you are purely intrinsically motivated. And it seems like a good part, point to say that it's rare that anyone is just all in on the intrinsic and no extrinsic or all in on the extrinsic and none on the intrinsic. We are all, um, I guess you say, a blend of the different types of motivations, but we do have a lean. And so those original conceptions were, do you have motivation or do you not? And then we divided it up and said, well, what about if you do have motivation, are you more intrinsic or more extrinsic? And so that's a, dis a useful distinction. But then in some ways that intrinsic motivation is, is still rarefied air for a lot of people, um, at least for you to lean into that as the primary and or your only motivation, because we live in a world where social considerations are, are a big deal. And so it would be rare for someone to be perfectly intrinsically motivated. So that's when we can divide those extrinsic motives into some of the better, more positive extrinsic motives versus things that are a little bit more potential for negativity. And so we can even say that someone says they exercise for health. Well, then I would want to know, what do you mean when you say you exercise for health? Are you exercising for health because you just want to be a healthy person? It's a part of your lifestyle. It's a part of your identity. Or are you exercising because you're fearful that you're going to get sick and you might die? Those motives are both extrinsic because you're not doing it just because you love it. You are doing it for a, an extrinsic outcome. One is for health, but one is for fear. Um, Can I cut you off there real quick? So sure. if you hear that, like, so if somebody's like literally has a general fear of dying and somebody's like, hey, I just kind of want to be healthy to be healthy. What are, I guess, the ways to differentiate between those individuals? Like, how would you, I guess, either program or approach either one of those scenarios? So if you're trying to simply distinguish <clears throat> what type of health motive they have, there are very simple rudimentary questionnaires that you could put in your hands to try to discern which way are they leaning on this health issue. Um, and I'll maybe only partially answer your question, make another point and I'll come back to your question, which is there are potentially very significant differences in those motives. We would both say that they are, we'd say they're both extrinsic and they're both health related but one of them relates back to this notion of autonomy. If I'm choosing to exercise because I want to be healthy, that's different than I'm exercising because I'm afraid if I don't do this, something bad's gonna happen to me. 
and, and another kind of easy comparison this would be some people would say they exercise because they like being with their friends and they like hanging out with people and there's this social element to exercising other people say that they they feel like they have to exercise or they're going to lose their social connections with people or people aren't going to think they're attractive or they're not going to think that they're fit and so both of those would be maybe kind of social related but one is freely chosen and one is out of pressure and so what the literature would say is that within this broad range of extrinsic motivations some of those extrinsic motives are autonomous freely chosen others are chosen if you will not freely but out of guilt and coercion and those sorts of things and so we can end up mapping this continuum to say the most desirable thing is to just love it just like a lot of people might love playing a sport like i love going to hit tennis balls. I love going to play basketball. You don't have to give me any cool trophy or benefit. I just like doing it. But I don't necessarily think I can say that that with the same amount of passion to climb on a treadmill to go running. There's parts of that that I really do enjoy, but I'm doing that for other reasons. But hopefully I'm doing it for reasons that are freely chosen and autonomous as opposed to doing them out of fear. So the best case scenario is to love it. And that's intrinsic motivation. The next best scenario is to be freely choosing to do it in a very autonomous, self-determined sort of way. Less desirable is when we're doing it out of pressure and coercion. If I'm doing it so my boyfriend or girlfriend doesn't break up with me, if I'm doing it because I'm going to try to get some reward that someone has put in front of me, those aren't necessarily very sustainable, very desirable motives. Now, the good news is someone might start very low on this continuum and they have this opportunity to kind of make their way through, hey, I'm just doing it to get the free t-shirt. I'm just doing it so I don't feel bad about myself. Those things can evolve and move into these much more positive motives. And so that's where something as a, that goes in the, in the coaching world, something called motivational interviewing, where you just try to assess what the people's motives are and you just try to encourage them to move in a direction of having these more positive motivations. So. Re refocus me back on whatever question you wanted to ask for that, Adam. No, I was just thinking, so if you have, again, that one, or you have pretty much the same individual, like, hey, I want to, I'm exercising to be healthy. But the other one's like, to be healthy is like, I'm afraid to die because this is why I exercise. And the other one is like, I just want to be healthy and, you know, just live a happy life. Like, but I think you hit it on, like, one is doing it more because it's, it's more autonomous for them. And the other one is more like that extrinsic, fearful mindset. But I guess... How would you approach either one? I feel like the one that is, you know, has that autonomous outlook, you can very rarely almost just kind of feed them anything and they'll do it. However, the other one, if you kind of feed them, I'm almost have that they might have some negative consequences with exercising long-term that eventually that mindset, Hey, I have to do this or I'm going to die. Like at the end of the day, in my head, we're all going to die. So doing exercise. Well, that's I, some deep stuff, man. Right. I mean, am I, I'm, I don't want to, all the smoke were at the end of the day, unfortunately, <laughs> fortunately, whatever you want to view, you're going to die. So I think, as you said, right, you want to have that autonomous outlook, but if you're just literally saying I got to exercise or I'm going to die, that intensity effort, the fun, the joy out of exercise, isn't going to be there. And I feel like there might be other negative consequences, either psychologically, physiologically, that you're not going to actually reap the benefits of exercise. Am I right or am I wrong there? Yep, yep, you're right. And, I mean, and the solution isn't easy, but it, it's available. I mean, we can think of this in a few different ways. If someone is exercising out of a motive um, 
to change their body composition. If again, that's kind of health related, we can, we can make that into a really positive reason. But if you're scared that you're getting fat, you're scared that you are getting weak and you're exercising from these positions, it absolutely, not necessarily, but it absolutely can lead you down a path where you're going to have what I sometimes describe as this very negative relationship with exercise that you, you might be trending towards exercise addiction. So you're staying with it. You are a dedicated exerciser, but you're doing it for such wrong reasons that there are deleterious effects on your, potentially on your physical health, but also on your mental health. And so that's a possibility too. But again, a part of this motivational interviewing process, and it really does match very maps very nicely on this self-determination theory is basically you find out what people's motives are and then in very careful, thoughtful ways that always desire for the individual to have more autonomy and more control. But along the way, you're educating them and you're helping them to see all of the many wonderful benefits that come with exercise. You can move people from these I feel forced and coerced by society to be healthy and fit through that autonomy. And they can get to the other side where at least a lot of their motives are more about maybe before I was doing this because I felt pressured to do this. But now that I have experienced this and I understand the benefits of exercise and I've had someone kind of walk with me through that, some of those more negative motives can evolve into more positive motives. And so again, that's the, the value and the place for a, a, a well-developed um, well coach um, or clinician to kind of guide that, that individual through it. And so this same idea of moving people along this motivational profile, this is commonly used in psychology and clinical work. And it, it works in general kind of wellness context as well. And so USF in the last couple of years has developed this wellness coaching certificate. It's not out of our department. It's over in public health, but you take a few courses. And at the end of that, you can be credentialed as a wellness coach, a health coach. And those individuals have no business dealing with people who have significant mental health disorders. Um, and they should know when to refer people out. But if you're just dealing with all the pressures and strains of life and busyness and difficulty, and you just need help navigating that there's a place for those kinds of people and so within this wellness coaching within this idea of motivational interviewing that i mentioned these are tools that are incorporated into what people should be able to do to help people achieve their goals in the most um, helpful sorts of ways got it so i mean i i totally think the the ultimate goal is to obviously you know it, and I would say almost words matter and catching it through motivational interviewing is probably a key part of that process. So you got to understand where to kind of push an individual in the right direction. So you don't get into those exercise addiction or it's like, Hey, I have to do this or things are negative. Things are going to happen to me. Um, but rather it's like, I, I choose to do this. I want to do this. I get to do this. Um, so I guess my next question is to you, how are you, able to kind of gauge that individual throughout the process that is in that really negative, I guess, place about exercise. Cause I think a lot of individuals and I've had some experience where I'm like, Hey man, like your mental state, like you are raising way too many flags for me to even have to deal with you. So I have to stay in my lane. You need to actually go see a specialist through the, Hey man, if you're viewing, if you just say you look at this and you're going to 
put on 10 pounds or it's like if I miss a minute of exercise or something like that, that I, I, I'm going to like break down um, or it's like I'm excessively exercising and now my hormonal health is all over the place. Um, how are you getting that individual, I guess, either step by step or how are you kind of doing a regular check in by them to making sure that, hey, we're going into the right direction. I think that can go for either somebody's that in a really dark place or someone that is doing good. But how would you recommend to check on somebody mentally through this uh, exercise spectrum? Yeah. So here's the disclaimer that I'm not a clinician on these issues and I don't have like an active sort of um, life where I'm training people. So I'm not, I'm not in the trenches like you guys are. I would simply say people like you who care about some of these, these bigger picture issues. And it's not just about how much you can lift um, and you care about your clients and want them to develop and maintain healthy lifestyles. It's incumbent upon people like you um, to um, learn these tools and you, you learn, you already know some of them. So what can you do for continuing education? What can you go out and do to, to be a better professional to help these people? Because in the end, they are counting on you to provide some of these resources, but you're perfectly correct in saying that you have to stay in your lane. If you detect some things that look very unsavory and unhealthy, you need to send those folks and you can't make people go get help, but if there's some stuff going on and you can recognize it, then you need to, to kind of farm that out to people. I, I think sometimes I say, and when I teach in classes, you should have a Rolodex of sorts as a, and if you're too young to know what a Rolodex is, but that used to be the thing where you keep all of these contacts where you're like, Hey, I need a lawyer. Hey, I need a mechanic. Hey, I need all these different people. Now we can have that in our phone. But as a professional, um, I would want you to have a dietitian that you could go to. We'll see if that was a one-timer. That was an alarm going off in the building. Um, you as a professional should have a dietitian. You should have a clinical psychologist. You should have um, physical therapists. Um, you should have um, maybe athletic trainers, maybe orthopedic specialists. You should have these people in your circle that when you, and if I didn't say it, you should have counselor types like clinical psychologists, um, behavioral specialists that you network with, that you can speak with, gain a little bit of wisdom, gain a little bit of information, but then refer your clients when you encounter them. And so the more education that professionals can get, are working with these clients, that's going to be beneficial because you don't, sometimes you don't know what you don't know. And so um, seeking education and whether we're talking about ACSM or NSCA or other certifying bodies, they all have continuing education opportunities around some of these issues. So that's at least how I would approach that. And I would say if the professional is, has some measure of training they're gonna be able to pick up on these signs to say, this looks healthy, this doesn't look healthy. They may have some tools where they can ask them some questions, whether it's formally in the form of a very brief questionnaire or more informally ask them some questions to try to get new information to help guide your decision-making on whether or not this person is good or whether this person maybe is heading in a, in a negative direction. So currently at the University of South Florida, a lot of your research, from my understanding, is, you know, the effective valence around aerobic exercise and how you utilize rate of perceived exertion to auto-regulate. Is that correct? At least in part, for sure. So most of the research that I do in the lab 
centers around how does exercise make us feel? And in part of that is how hard is this exercise? And so in maybe kind of a, a flyover kind of a term, we would say hard exercise is really good for us. There are some really tremendous metabolic benefits and some training benefits for doing hard exercise. And I'm going to stay in my lane here and talk about it from the perspective of aerobic exercise, but intense exercise provides a lot of benefit. And yet we know that from the, from the literature that I've had made some contributions towards that really intense exercise also kind of quote, makes people feel bad. Um, if you're exercising at a very high intensity above your lactate threshold, above your ventilatory threshold, your lungs are on fire, your legs are on fire. This is a very uncomfortable thing. If you're just a regular person and you are not an athlete and you're new to exercise and you start experiencing these symptoms, rightly, you're going to say, this sucks and I'm out. Um, now, if you're an athlete and you feel all those sensations, you're like, this is exactly what I was looking for. This stuff is working. It's going to lead me to where I want to go. But if you are naive to exercise or new to exercise, those really, really negative feelings that you get absolutely have a great opportunity to cause you to hang it up and say, I'm not going to do this. And so what a lot of research is trying to do is trying to find how can we give proper doses of exercise to people that will provide significant health and fitness benefits, but we can do that without ruining them from a psychological perspective. And so part of that is measuring affect and knowing maybe what that sweet spot is. And we understand that if we have people do continuous exercise that's below those kinds of lactate thresholds, then they're going to have a much better opportunity to, um, have a good experience that they're going to be more likely and more willing to repeat. Now, the good news is over time, if they have good experiences with the more moderate exercise, they might be hardy enough and ready enough to take on the really, really hard exercise. And so part of what I would say as an immediate recommendation is someone who's genuinely new to exercise, they absolutely need to be eased into their program as it relates to the intensity. There are a small minority of people who are unfit and sedentary, who really want to be punished physically, and they somehow derive some benefit from that, and it motivates them. But for the average person who's new to exercise, um, without pause or hesitation, I would say these people need to be eased into the intensity of it until they can manage that well and they respond to that well, and then you can layer lay on some heavier intensity kinds of things. And so that's the the affective valence piece that you were talking about, Adam, but then within that, we can also talk about perceived exertion. Um, and then you also mentioned the notion of um, kind of auto-regulation. And then I would um, maybe use slightly different languages in terms of self-regulatory kinds of exercise. And so it's very reasonable to ask people when we're prescribing exercise, again, especially for the novice, um, to encourage them to exercise at an intensity that is not overwhelming physically, which could be evaluated by something like an RPE scale, or to exercise at an intensity that is not overwhelming in terms of the psychological like consequences that they're experiencing. So there's some pretty cool research that basically says, instead of worrying about your VO2 max and your heart rate and your lactate, let's just go out and exercise at an intensity that literally feels good. And because if it feels good, that's going to provide a greater opportunity for that experience to be repeated. And so you can literally use affect as a tool for regulating exercise intensity. 
necessarily that intensity is not going to be very high, especially within the context of a novice person. But again, in the, in the novice, we want to limit their exposure to things that are going to be considered noxious and very, very unpleasant. And then over time, we add in more intensity and they can handle some of that unpleasant um, unpleasantness that they might experience. And so we can prescribe exercise based off of the affect. Um, but we can also just say, if we want you to exercise um, off of the RPE, we know that if you pick a moderate intensity, that also is associated with a more positive affective response. And so if we look at one of those old six to 20 scales, we can say 12, 13, 14, that might be the high end of comfortable for people. And that's a very reasonable and good way to do some of that work. And then part of the research that I've contributed to is, well, we know the high intensity stuff might be a little bit better, some health benefits that are a little better, some training benefits that are better. But if we know that people are gonna be struggling psychologically uh, when they're doing that work, how can we still expose them to the high intensity stuff without making them feel terrible? And so that is the place where doing some high intensity interval training can be a, a really good solution, which is you give folks a really nice heavy dose of something really, really hard, but you pull back on that and give them a recovery period before the hard becomes terrible. And then by the time they recover for a minute or 30 seconds or whatever the protocol might be, you give it to them again, they get some of the, the benefit of that intense work. And just as it's maybe about to start moving them towards feeling not good, they get another recovery period. And so it's not some sort of magic elixir, um, but high intensity interval training can be a way that you can get some exposure to those extra beneficial intensities without having to stay there so long that it creates a very negative affective consequence. So with regards to RPE and, you know, feeling a perceived exertion that is, I guess, right or hard, right? We're all going to have different experiences. And I always use the example of, I guess, you know, I'll try to stay in my, my lane with resistance training, right? You always have that client that no matter what the load is, the weight on that bar, everything's an RPE eight if we're using a scale one to 10. Um, and it's not till you use an AMRAP or you use some sort of, I guess, I'm trying to think of the, the word, but you use some sort of gauge to, okay, hey, this is actually what an eight or a nine or a 10 is supposed to feel like. Is that what you use HIT training to be? Because I always hear the, the counter argument of, People don't use hit the right way because people don't know how to actually how to push themselves. So what is your, I guess, your, your argument with that, that piece? All right. So two things and come to mind and then we'll see if it ends up answering your question. So part of what you're talking about in terms of do people really know how to respond to RPE properly? Do they tell the truth when they're responding to the RPE? Um, <clears throat> if you really want to be careful and good about this, there's a procedure called an anchoring procedure that you can use with RPE, where you carefully um, through words and through experience, maybe like an acute experience with them. This is what we mean when we talk about an RPE of, of something low. This is what we mean when there's an RPE of something that's more moderate and then give them maybe a true maximum experience, push them all the way to the end and say, now, if you truly gave all, gave your all, that's going to be on the scale of 10. That's going to be a nine or a 10. That's what you just did. And so there's value in going through an anchoring procedure where you can basically teach people how they should be thinking about the RPE. Also important in this is the value in 
there being trust and communication around what you're doing with that information. If the client, the athlete thinks that you're going to use this to manipulate them, to give them more work than they want to do, then they're going to be sandbagging a little bit, or they're going to be doing something else that's going to protect their own interests. And so if you have a good coach client um, kind of a relationship, then you don't have to, to stress over that very much. And so that's at least part of what you had. And I think I've already lost my, my flow on the other piece, but react again and maybe I'll come back to the other point. No, you hit one. So I, I was thinking like, right, you see, and, and you hit, you literally took the word that I was trying to f- search for is that anchoring aspect of, right? Okay. If I always say if an RPE 10 is me, if I punch you and you get knocked out, that's an RPE 10 of me, I guess, trying to anchor, but not give them an actual experience. But would you say over time, an individual's experience because right, they should be improving in their fitness. So now that 10 that happened three months ago is no longer a 10. Are you going to head just reiterate another maximal threshold test? Or are you going to say, Hey, let's see through via another situation or a, or a protocol. This is now what your tenant actually is. So there's always room, I think, whether we're talking about aerobic training or resistance training to have some sort of periodic reevaluation of like what your maximum capabilities are. But if there's no energy or enthusiasm for doing that, I think that initial anchoring procedure will have value to that individual moving forward. They can, they can adjust what workload corresponded to an eight or a nine or a 10. And as you note, part of the progression process is the workload that used to be an eight or a nine with training is now going to be a six or a seven. And that's the normal part of the process. I don't think there is extreme value in periodically re-anchoring them. Now, if you need new fitness data so that you can prescribe work, then, then go for it. But once someone has had a good anchoring experience and they say, you know what, now I know what you mean when you say a nine or a 10, even after they had their fitness level changes, they, they, they can refer back to that experience to know what a nine or a 10 really should feel like. And then the other point that I was going to make, I think from your previous comment in terms of the, the intervals and how hard are people really working? Um, this is something I've been thinking about quite a bit. It hasn't been that long ago that when people talked about doing high intensity interval training, especially within the context of aerobic exercise, those intervals needed to be really, really hard. They needed to be near maximum, probably at least 90% of your kind of peak workload capabilities from some sort of aerobic exercise test. And so like if someone's on a bike and they can pedal, um, out to 300 watts, if I was going to give them a high intensity interval training session, I would give them 90% for their work and 10% for their recovery. So 90% for a minute is no joke. That's pretty hard. And then you give them a nice recovery. So by the end of this, they do perhaps 10 minutes of real hard work and 10 minutes of recovery with one minute on one minute off patterning. And that's a, a pretty fantastic hit workout. There's been movement, it seems in the last several years, in a way that feels somewhat alarming to me is that we're lowering the goalposts for what it means to be doing high intensity interval training, where it doesn't need to be 90%. It doesn't need to be 85%. It can be 80% or it can be 75%. And so I still need to kind of walk my way through what I think about all that. But one of my initial responses is if we're going to call this high intensity interval training, it should be something that's high intensity. And if we're going to back down off of that intensity, we're probably going to need to add the duration to kind of make up for our lost intensity. And so that goes into 
all of these kind of volume calculations that you have to do on the aerobic side and on the resistance side. So yeah, to I always had the, my bad, Chris, but I always started, I feel like back in undergrad hit was the thing. Like if you weren't doing hit, you weren't doing it. You're not doing it right. Or you're, you're missing out on all these benefits. And I think nowadays it's like, okay, let's maybe increase that duration, as you said, but keep the intensity lower. And I think from my perspective, either from my clients or even for myself, it's more of like, Hey, we need to actually be able to recover from this duration of exercise. Um, and I would say, if you're going to utilize it, we can do it. But again, that total volume, the duration of work is probably gonna have to be less so we can make sure that we're recovering from it. Um, so I think that's where I, the pendulum has kind of swung now. Um, but to, I've, I have yet to hear that, Hey, maybe we just need to go lower, lower with that intensity because that's that key component of why hit is so great from what I've always understood. Yeah. So we have probably arrived at a place where we understand it's not always just about training harder, but the, 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 the phrase of train smarter, not harder that rank that rings true. Um, but there has been a shift um, in the last decade or two towards a greater understanding very specifically to what you were noting, which is the recovery element. Um, a really, really intense bout of exercise. And, and I'm just still kind of coming into my own in terms of thinking about this. And so these aren't maybe fully formed or fully backed by research, but I think they're pretty solid. Is that if we're looking at three different sessions of exercise, we have one that's a, a killer high intensity interval workout that's near maximum intensity, a hit training session. And then on the other end, we have something that's kind of long and slow, um, not very high intensity below that anaerobic threshold, but maybe bumping up towards it. So it's a significant bout, but it's not, um, it's not really hard and it's not really easy. And then we have that one in the middle where we can do continuous exercise for 20 or 30 minutes and it's kind of full-time suffering all the way through. So there's three different sessions of exercise. One that's you can't possibly do continuously. And so you have to do it in intervals really hard. And we know to be very beneficial. And then we have this other dose that's 20 or 30 minutes long that's continuous that's really really hard and we know it can provide some nice benefit as well and then we have this longer slower bout of exercise it used to be that the prevailing wisdom was we need lots and lots of those harder sessions of exercise if we want to be a better aerobic athlete there appears to be a significant trend in a way that the literature supports that elite athletes do the vast majority of their elite aerobic athletes do the vast majority of their training in that lower um, domain of intensity. And don't misunderstand, the load that they're doing is more than most people can do even just for a few minutes. And so when we talk about low intensity, it's very, very relative. But even when we say it's a lower intensity, it's still for them something that's taxing, but something that they can still do for a very, very long periods of time. And so if we look at how elite aerobic athletes train, they spend 70 to 80% of their time spent in that sort of intensity. And they sprinkle in very strategically bouts of exercise that are in those other two domains. There's a concept referred to as polarized training in particular, where they say, do the vast majority, the bulk of your work in that so-called lower intensity, more moderate intensity. 
And then maybe you put in 15 or 20% into that interval domain. And then you really just have a very small exposure to that kind of middle domain. Elite athletes, and we can't say that, hey, if, if an elite athlete does it, that's how I should do it. But at least within the context of elite athletes, there appears to be a place where the bulk of the training is in the more moderate intensity, a sizable amount, but still a minority amount is in that really, really intense interval domain and very little exposure in that middle domain. And now finally getting to one of your points, which is related to recovery. And this is where I'm, everything I've said at this point, I'm, I'm solid on, but where I'm kind of coming into my own and my own understanding of this is, I don't think that it is the case that those workouts that are on that lower part of the intensity domain are more beneficial than either of the two harder workouts. It's that you can do that lower intensity bout every day if you want to, you never have to worry about recovery. As an individual in isolation in a Petri dish, are those harder bouts of exercise potentially more beneficial for creating adaptation? I think the answer might be yes, but I can't do as many of those bouts because they're so taxing the next day, I can't do that work again. And so if we judge them each in a vacuum, I think those really, really intense sessions of exercise are really potent and really beneficial. But if I have to build in so much recovery in response to them, then I'm going to have to be very careful about how often I put them into my program. And again, I'm speaking about this from the aerobic domain. And so I'm not sure what the applications would be on the resistance side, but Elite athletes spend most of their time doing things that would be described as moderate and they sprinkle in the really, really intense stuff. And there, that may be a model for the recreational enthusiast in terms of aerobic exercise as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, from a resistance training perspective, um, there's a lot of good literature that yes, training to failure is good, but we don't need to actually go, I guess, to failure every single set because right it will impede recovery. It's going to increase the risk of injury. Um, and I think you know, a lot of what you said previously is you might not like actually doing that exercise. So you're going to be like, screw that. I'm not doing it. And whatever it may be, again, that negative, uh, I guess, steamroll starts to kind of accumulate. Um, you know, I think one question that I want to end this off is with, you know, specifically with the research realm, when we talk about all these individuals doing the same protocol but we always, you know, average them up, especially with the psycho psychological aspect. Do you think there's going to be a point where we start having these individual, you know, data sets where we're presenting, you know, each individual's, I guess, perspective. So we have a better idea of what's actually happening per individual rather than just kind of clumping them into an average. So I think we have these better understanding of what is actually happening per individual rather than just clumping everything together, if that makes sense. Yeah, so I think from a from a research perspective, you have to kind of think about the masses. And so you collect a lot of data and you say, this is the average across all of these individuals. And so there will always be value in that. And that really is the kind of the way science works is it works off of larger numbers rather than smaller numbers. But we can't forsake the very important reality that there are what would be described as inter-individual differences. There are people who respond in these really hyper sorts of ways and these very hypo sorts of ways in, in terms of the stimulus that they're receiving. And so 
can we get to a place that we can be more individualistic or more granular? Yes. And there's even some movement in some of the exercise science literature to be more mindful of this. But um, most of the literature continues to be, here's what the group mean is. Now, mathematically, if you're looking at a mean, you can also look at the standard deviation and look at all the variation around those means to try to get a better sense of, here's the mean, but is everyone kind of responding in a very similar way? Or is there a wild fluctuation in those responses? And that can be informative as well. I think it has to be the case when we move forward in time and we think about all the technology that's being created that's helping us better understand loads, um, sleep and recovery and diet and nutrition, all these things beginning to come online. There, there has to be a place. Um, I'm not sure its role in scientific um, discovery in terms of doing research in labs. Um, but certainly at the individual level, there are going to be tools that are going to be put in people's hands to try to help them understand it, what it means for them. Because what I might discover in a lab with 30 people, there's going to be people out on the fringes on either side that are not going to be representative of what's going on in the middle. And science tends to cater to the people that are in the middle um, rather than the people who are those ones and two standard deviations out to the side. Got it. All right. So Marcus Kilpatrick, for our couple listeners out there, could you tell them where they could find you? I know you not, from what I understand, you're not really active on social media. So you're a ghost actually, but where could they find you if they wanted to find you? Well, well, I would like to point out, Adam, that if we were to somehow be able to find out who has the oldest um, Facebook account, um, I'm probably in one of those top one or two percent of early adopters. <laughs> so I have a Facebook account that has no friends and no activity, but I have an account. So um, I do have social media that I never use. Um, and the first friend I ever accept has to be my wife, apparently. So but you are correct. Um, I don't I don't um, currently leveraging social media. What about MySpace? Do you have MySpace? Um, I, bought stock, I bought stock in MySpace and made a fortune, Chris. So yes. Ooh. Um, Smart. Um, you don't have a TikTok yet? No. Um, fun story. <laughs> Did you know that, um, that what's our, what's our guy Zuckerberg? That's our Facebook guy, right? He attempted to sell Facebook to MySpace and MySpace didn't want it. And then two years later, MySpace is ruined and he's a billionaire. So sometimes you just make bad business moves. Um, so yeah, no social media for me. Um, but certainly I can be reached by way of email and maybe you guys can be creative enough that you can put that in the, uh, the yeah. Yeah. We can definitely put that in the show notes. Not even a research gate, Dr. K. Not even a research, what a research gate. Do you not have a research gate profile? Oh, I'm sorry. I mean, I can be found on Google scholar, um, and those kind of research gate types of places, but I only really update the Google Scholar stuff. I don't, I don't fuss too much with the research gate. Probably should. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that was all the, all the smoke with Dr. Marcus Kilpatrick. And this was how to figure out how to take your psychology, how to take your mental, uh, your current mental state and benefit yourself to getting to your goals as fast as possible. If you guys have any future questions or you guys want to look further into the the study behind how you feel when you exercise and how it can benefit you. You know where to find them on Google Scholar and leave us some reviews, leave some comments, feedback. If you guys have any topics we, you'd like us to cover, go ahead, shoot those in. We'll go ahead and get those answered in details or we'll get an expert like 
Dr. Marcus Kilpatrick and help us decipher the information as well.